DiscerningHearts.com presents Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. Dr. Lillis is an associate professor and the academic dean of St. John's Seminary in Camarillo, California, as well as the academic advisor for the St. Juan Diego House of Priestly Formation for the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. Through the years, clergy, seminarians, religious, and lay faithful have benefited from his lectures and retreat conferences on the Carmelite Doctors of the Church and the writings of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. He's the author of several books, including Hidden Mountain Secret Garden, A Theological Contemplation of Prayer. In this series of conversations with Dr. Lillis, we reflect on the writings of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. Her retreat, Heaven and Faith, is the source of our current reflection. Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Elizabeth of the Trinity and this great gift of Heaven and Faith, the retreat that she wanted to gift to her sister, and it turned out to be a gift to the world. That's right. Just by way of review, she wrote this last couple months before her death. She she was permitted to go on a retreat. She was in the infirmary, and she was given a notebook, actually requested it so that she could write down reflections for her sister. She was concerned that her sister, who was the mother of two young daughters, that her sister be able to enter deep into contemplative prayer. Elizabeth was of the opinion that everyone can enter deep into prayer. Everyone can uh, open their heart to contemplative prayer and that prayer was necessary for the Christian life, that we need moments, experience, of, or actually the encounter of the Lord in prayer to sustain us in the vocation that God entrusted us, entrusts us with. And so we began going through the retreat. It's a 10 days. We're on day four and um, just so everyone can kind of see where we've come, the, the whole retreat starts with uh, Jesus' prayer in the Gospel of John uh, to the Father the night before he dies. Jesus prays, asking the Father that everyone who is given to him might dwell with him where he dwells. And the place where Jesus dwells is in the very bosom of the Trinity, in the heart of the love of the uh, of the father and elizabeth says this is where we're meant to abide we're meant to dwell there this is our home we're made to live in love and she spends time reflecting on that this remaining in love isn't something that we do you know for a few minutes here or there nor is it something that we put off until the end of our lives rather this remaining in love is something for us Right here and right now, we can live a life where we are established no matter what we do in the presence of love. And everything that we do flows from this love and go to this love if we choose to live in this love by faith. And so her retreat is musical. Themes kind of repeat over and over, but they always take on a slightly different emphasis. She herself was a pianist. She loved uh, Mendelssohn and Tchaikovsky and other composers from the Romance period and the energy they bring to their music with the, the, where these kind of themes repeat it with different moods and colors and hues. Uh, we find this same kind of dynamic in her writings as she's exhorting us to pray. 
and so in calling us into the bosom of love she she also reminds us of Jesus's words remain in me she speaks about the fact that to remain in Jesus we need to enter deep into our hearts and search for him there and uh, Jesus is especially present in the painful parts of our lives that uh, we need to uh, instead of avoiding those painful parts of our lives we need to face those and ask the Lord where are you present St. Augustine in his confessions spends the first seven books really the first eight books of the confessions going back over his life looking at all the ways God was present to him when he was far away from God. And Teresa of Avila, she says that this is also something for those of us who are beginning to pray that we need to spend time doing. We need to spend time looking at our lives in light of God's love for us. And as we do that, we see these painful places where we didn't live out of God's love. Uh, We need to surrender those to him. Uh, uh, Elizabeth of the Trinity calls this abyss calling on abyss the abyss of our misery is called upon by the abyss of god's love so that as we enter into our misery we discover the deeper abyss of god's mercy our misery are all the places in our hearts where god's love is absence and god's mercy uh, this is where his love floods those places where the limits of our existence touch the limitlessness of his love. So that kind of brings us up to where we're coming now. As we do this, we find ourselves dying to ourselves, our own selfishness, uh, our own lack of love, our selfish preoccupations, our anxieties, our fears. And as we die to those things, we open ourselves up, we become free to love. And in day four, that sh- she begins to explore What is this freedom of love that he's calling us to? Day four starts out with a beautiful reflection on the writings of St. Paul and that whole image of fire. Deus ignis consumens. Our God, wrote St. Paul, is a consuming fire. That is, a fire of love which destroys which transforms into itself everything that it touches. The delights of the divine enkindling are renewed in our depths by an unremitting activity, the enkindling of love in a mutual and eternal satisfaction. It is a renewal that takes place at every moment in the bond of love. Certain souls have chosen this refuge to rest there eternally. And this is the silence in which somehow they have lost themselves. Freed from their prison, they sail on the ocean of divinity without any creature being an obstacle or a hindrance to them. For these souls, the mystical death of which St. Paul spoke yesterday become so simple and sweet. They think much less of the work of destruction and detachment that remains for them to do than of plunging into the furnace of love burning within them, which is none other than the Holy Spirit, the same love 
which in the Trinity is the bond between the Father and His Word. They enter into Him by living faith, and there, in simplicity and peace, they are carried away by Him beyond all things, beyond sensible pleasures, into the sacred darkness, and are transformed into the divine image. They live, in St. John's expression, in communion with the three adorable persons, sharing their life. And this is the contemplative life. This contemplation leads to possession. Now this simple possession is eternal life savored in the unfathomable abode. It is there, beyond reason, that the profound tranquility of the divine immutability awaits us. You know, that image of that, the fire of God's love, that Trinitarian presence, and that image being in the center of the domestic church is, I'm recalling, Anthony, just the devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus, that in France around this time with Elizabeth's experience, I'm sure, of that devotion that families were called to place on that furnace of love. That, wow, what a beautiful connection. And it is true. While Elizabeth of the Trinity, to my knowledge, never talks directly about the Sacred Heart of Jesus, the theme of the Heart of Jesus lives throughout all her writings. She's, she's listening to his heart. As a historical note, the Carmelite Monastery in Dijon, it was founded originally in 1605, but with the French Revolution in the late 18th century, it was closed down and abandoned and only reestablished in 1866. But then it grew very quickly. By the time Elizabeth joins the monastery, I believe 1901, they have at least 25 sisters, and the prioress has been going on trips to paris le monial uh, where the apparitions took place to St. Margaret Mary Alacoque of the Sacred Heart. And they're so big, for a Carmelite monastery, 25 is a huge number. They're so big, they want to start another foundation closer to where the apparitions of the Sacred Heart happened because they thought that in order to intercede for France and for families, and for priests, and for Carmelites, they needed to be close to that grace of the Sacred Heart. Eventually, they will open up a foundation uh, in Paralomonial uh, while Elizabeth is in Carmel. Unfortunately, the original vision was that Elizabeth was supposed to actually join the new Carmelite monastery in Paralomonial, but her health never really permits her to do that. And so what a beautiful insight you had drawing together this notion of the sacred heart with this making the Trinity the heart of our family life. And it's through, and actually it is, it is through the heart of Jesus. It's through his heart that burns 
with love for each one of us that he gives to us. You know, what's the, what's the meaning of a heart? The heart is not simply a physical organ. But the, when we speak about the heart, we're talking about the part of us that we give to each other. What ought to characterize family life when we say that the family life is supposed to be a school of love? The family is supposed to be a place where we give our hearts to each other. How do we learn to really give our hearts to one another? How do a man and woman learn to give their hearts to each other in marriage? How do moms and dads learn to give their hearts to their children? How do children learn to give their hearts to their brothers and sisters and to their parents? We learn this because Jesus gives his heart to us. That's what the crucifixion is was all about. He opened up his heart to us and entrusted to it to us no matter what happened, no matter how much we'd abuse it, he was not going to take back his gift. He was going to give it all the way. And in giving it all the way, he revealed a love that was stronger than death. And we need to learn how to love like this in our families. Deus ignis consumens. Our God, wrote St. Paul, is a consuming fire. That is, a fire of love which destroys, which transforms into itself everything that it touches. The delights of the divine enkindling are renewed in our depths by an unremitting activity, the enkindling of love in a mutual and eternal satisfaction. And Jesus revealed that kind of love for us on the cross. What he was making accessible to us is what Elizabeth is talking about in this passage. He's making accessible to us through his death and resurrection and by praying for the gift of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He's making accessible to us the very love which he shares with the Father and which the Father shares with him. It's a love personified in the very gift of the Holy Spirit. It's with that love that we can love one another. And this is why Elizabeth is insistent. How do you access this gift of love? How, how do you let this kind of love be part of your heart so that you can love like this? The, way, the only way to do it is through a deeper life of prayer. So families that learn to love the way they learn to love is by allowing, uh, by making space for God in their family life, by making space for the heart of Jesus in their families. And some families do this by consecrating their families to the sacred heart of Jesus. And I think it's a very powerful and beautiful practice. It gets to this very reality that Elizabeth is talking about here. Beautiful. And it, also she, in this, says that they think much less of the work of destruction and detachment that remains for them. Instead, she's almost giving you permission. It's okay to, to even let all that go. Just rest in this moment, just stay there in this furnace of love. It's, it's okay. Certain souls have chosen this refuge to rest there eternally. And this is the silence in which somehow they have lost themselves. Freed from their prison, they sail on the ocean of divinity without any creature being an obstacle or a hindrance to them. What's so powerful about this, and 
this is a an experience some people have when they've returned back to their faith after being away for a long time or discovering it for the first time. One of the things they can become very, very aware of is the power of of sin in their lives and how much they've allowed sin to control the way they relate to others and the way they relate to God. And once you begin to realize how much sin has had a grip over you in your life, the, one of the things you can get preoccupied with is how mediocre, how uh, wicked, how broken you are, and you become afraid about how much God still has to work before I figure this out and, and start living life the way I should. In other words, you can begin to think thoughts that are overwhelming and you end up defeating yourself before you get started. The only way really to live the Christian life, it, we need to repent of sin, of course, and God, uh, it's a gift when God shows us that the sin in our life is something ugly that we need to deal with. That's a gift. But the only way to deal with it, to deal with the brokenness in our lives, is by a deeper realization, a deeper encounter with God's love for us. The deeper you grow into that love and embrace that love, the less and less influence sin has in your life. And the more you find yourself freer and freer to love, the worst thing about sin is that it holds us back from loving God and from loving one another. But by turning our attention to how much God has loved us, even in the face of our sinfulness, uh, we discover resources, inexhaustible riches that we can draw from in our efforts to love one another. For these souls, the mystical death of which St. Paul spoke yesterday becomes so simple and sweet. They think much less of the work of destruction and detachment that remains for them to do than of plunging into the furnace of love burning within them, which is none other than the Holy Spirit, the same love which in the Trinity is the bond between the Father and His Word. They enter into Him by living faith, and there, in simplicity and peace, they are carried away by him beyond all things, beyond sensible pleasures, into the sacred darkness, and are transformed into the divine image. It seems as though it, it just satisfies that ache. I mean, isn't that what we have in today's culture, Anthony? It's just this tremendous ache, and we just don't know. We go to doctors, we, we hear solutions for it on the television, we go everywhere else, and yet the, the great mystics, they, that's where they're always leading you is into that depth. That is a very beautiful insight, and I think it gets true. And, and I think sometimes we want to find any other solution besides God for that. I think sometimes people uh, get caught up in pursuits of all kinds of gratification and all kinds of distractions in life, whether material or uh, in terms of trying to secure the respect of others and, and so forth. And all the, It's not that enjoying everything is bad or anything is bad. Uh, it's not that having the reputation of others or being thought well of by others is bad in itself. Or, and it's not having positions of power and being in control of things are, are bad in themselves. But, but the problem is none of those things can take away this ache that you're speaking of. That ache, that deep restlessness in our hearts 
only God can fill that. That's something that speaks to something that uh, a place where God wants to dwell in us, wants us to encounter him. And only when we find him does that, do we find relief for that ache. Uh, because as St. Augustine says, our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. Mm. So, There's one other aspect in this whole notion of being transformed to the point of uh, becoming very much like God. That sometimes freaks people out. They're not so sure it's Christian. But did you have any reaction to that kind of language? When I first heard that terminology, I kind of, it took me aback because we're told that we were not supposed to be that type of disposition, that maybe that's new age-ish, if I may be really honest. But however, Elizabeth of the Trinity's great friend, St. Paul, is the one that tells us it is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. So with that in mind, I can really see where she's trying to lead us. I think it's right on. And and I think sometimes when we hear language like this, we can, there is a, a, an initial knee jerk reaction because there's such a misunderstanding of this doctrine. You know, uh, there are a number of people today who are involved with spirituality and their idea of this transformation is not what is revealed in the scriptures, but the way they talk about it, the way they develop it. It's more of a an absorption into the divine being. You lose your personhood as you are absorbed into this divine being. And sometimes in certain Christian mystics, you'll find that kind of language, but that's not exactly what they mean. When, when mm-hmm. they talk like that, like Saint Therese of Lisieux will talk about being a drop of water in the ocean. It's not who she is that gets lost. It's just that... The reality of God is so great, so immense, so overwhelming that all of a sudden you're not aware of yourself anymore. But this is the great truth. This is what specifies or uh, unique in Christian spirituality. The more we lose ourselves in Christian spirituality, the more we lose ourselves, the more fully we become ourselves because this is the way God is in the Holy Trinity. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, in a certain sense, are not self-aware. The Son is so aware of the Father and the Spirit, he's not worried about himself. He doesn't worry about uh, having to make a name for himself or anything like that. It's all about the Father, and it's all about glorifying the Father. If you look at his teaching, the Father and I are one, and I offer all things to the Father. Everything belongs to the Father. It's all for the glory of the Father. When people become fully mature in the spiritual life, they're not self-occupied. They're occupied with others. They're occupied with God and all those God has put into their lives. And when the work of grace has developed this in them, as that begins to unfold more and more in their lives, without even realizing it, they've begun to realize what it means to be fully human. What it means to be fully human is to be like God because God created us in his image and likeness. But because of sin and because of the limitedness of our nature, that work of becoming like God, fully becoming his image and likeness, it takes a lot of, a lot of effort on our part, a lot of surrender on our part to the difficult work that the Spirit is doing within us. And so this transformation of our being into a, a being who loves and uh, is, is like God, pure love, This transformation is a very difficult, very hard transformation to make. What Elizabeth is saying in this passage 
is for God to be able to do that work in you, for, for God to be able to make you fully into his image and like you, for God to be able to transform you into himself so that you can be that living image, that kind of living icon of God. What we need to do to give him space is we need to turn our heart and our thoughts to him. We need to let him become the priority of of our heart, the object of our affections. We need to let that yearning for God grow in our heart. And the more that yearning for God grows in our heart, the more space God has to make us in his image and likeness. Uh, St. Irenaeus said something. The Holy Father, Blessed John Paul II, used to quote this quite often. The glory of God is man fully alive, and the life of man is the vision of God. And Elizabeth is saying, if we turn our attention to God, if we seek God, if we try to see him by with the eyes of faith, we will be filled with life. We will become like God, meaning we will glorify him. We will reveal his glory because when we fully live, when we see God and, we, and our hearts are ignited with those, those holy desires that break forth in all kinds of wonderful acts of service to those we love and to those who are entrusted to us, when we see God and let that bear fruit in our lives, that glorifies God because we're living life to the full. What runs so strongly in the in the reflections, the teachings of Elizabeth of the Trinity, is that you may not always be happy, but there can be an everlasting joy. And that's what the heart is crying out for, isn't it? That joy. Yeah, uh, this is uh, so misunderstood in our culture because a lot of people think that joy is the same as Somebody who's joyful is is kind of in this kind of uh, psychic state of a good mood the whole time. Well, I know some very holy people who don't usually have a lot of good moods. They even have moodiness sometimes that kind of hangs over them. And yet, on a deeper level, they really are joyful because they have something the world cannot take away. Not even their own moodiness can rob them of. And, And it's this the joy of the Lord, the possession of the Lord in their lives. And so that is a a wisdom, a gift, a fruit uh, the Holy Spirit produces in us as as we live uh, before the, the mystery of the cross, as we choose to live by love, choose to respond to the love that has been lavished upon us. We grow in this love that no one can take from us, a joy that nothing in this world can rob us of, even our own moodiness. Mm. Well, <laughs> if we can be protected from that, well, praise God. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Anthony, I, I wish we had more time. We've Any final thoughts? Oh, I think that what she's promised us is uh, such a beautiful thing. She says that if we surrender completely to the to the love of God, if we surrender completely to this burning fire in our heart, then we will find everywhere the secret of growing in love, uh, even in its relations with the world in the midst of life's cares. It can rightly say, my only occupation is loving. And I don't think that's so bad at all. We still have prayer too. I'm so looking forward to our next conversation. I am too. 
You've been listening to Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis. To hear and or to download this episode, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com and join us next time for Beginning to Pray with Dr. Anthony Lillis.